The scripture reading tonight is from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, who his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to ask him to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to be here in a special way, uh, to bridge your word, these words that are yours, uh, off off these pages. Would Would they come off these pages? Would they go through my lips? And would they land in the ears of each one of my listeners? Would you grant understanding? Uh, And Father, would we leave this place changed by you, by your Holy Spirit, by your words? Uh, It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. What's the worst part of sports for some of us? For some of you, this is going to be like the, the best part, like team sports, competitive sports when you start out. It's picking sides, picking teams. I think that's one of the worst parts. What happens? The two kids that are the best at whatever game you're playing, baseball, soccer, football, they're like, let's make teams. And suddenly they're the team captains, self-elected. No one can challenge that. And they line everyone up, those kids that want to play and they're excited to play, those kids that are like, okay, and those kids that have no desire to play but got forced into it, maybe by their parents or a youth group leader. <laughs> and then the, the, the team captains begin to choose, and they, they always start with the best players, right? Like the most athletic, the tallest, the strongest, the fastest, the quickest. Some of you know this because you're like, oh, that was me. You feel good about that. And when the, when the kids come up, it's always like, high five, yeah, you're on our team. We're going to have the best team. But pretty soon, all the good players are gone, right? You have to start working your way down the hierarchy of middle school and high school talent for sports. You get to the kids that are like average, mediocre. And that's when like the, the team captain's face like really scowls up. He begins to concentrate because he has to figure out which kid is just a little bit better than the other kid. It's the kids that's average, that might have some skill, but also might mess it up. It's a gamble. 
They choose those, and then finally we come to the, the worst. The kids that have no talent, the kids that don't want to be there, or maybe they do want to be there, but uh, they're just not good at it. Some of you know which camp I should be in. These are the kids that no one wants, right? The, the outcasts, the rejects, and they get chosen too, but reluctantly, and maybe they don't get as much playing time. Maybe they just really go sit on the side and watch the game go. And that's kind of how the lineup works, right? That's how you choose teams. That's how you choose sides. Do we ever do this with our faith? Do we ever do this with Christianity? (laughs) We look out into this world and we say, wow, that person, I want that person on my team. High five, yeah, come be a Christian. We look at other people and we're like, well, you'll do. Thank you. You would make a moderately successful Christian. So we choose them, or we, we'll invite those people to church. And then there's this other category, this third category. Like, wow, that person, that person is never going to church. That person is never coming to Christ. That person is an outsider in the faith. The gospel of Luke is a reminder that Jesus came for people that are chosen last, <laughs> that are picked last. We've already been seeing this throughout the story of the Gospel of Luke, haven't we? I want to review for a moment. I want to go back to Luke chapter 4. I'm going to flip in my Bible, and I encourage you to do it as well. And if you didn't pick up one of those NIV Bibles in the back, you can look at the screen. But I want you to know that that's cheating. And if we go back, we can actually see in verses 18 and 19 the purpose of Jesus' ministry. He gives us his purpose, and what does he say? He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, who do those kinds of people sound like? They don't sound like the popular cool kids that get chosen first for their talent and ability and intellect. The poor, the oppressed, the captives. These are the kinds of people that Jesus invites into his kingdom. And even in that culture, they were kind of the outsiders, the outcasts. And I don't think it's actually that much different in our culture. These same categories, the poor, the oppressed, the outsider. Jesus, his mission, the gospel of Luke is written for them. Because when we think of who we want to be in our kind of religious circle, our religious camp, we're quick to invite the best. In fact, the people of Jesus' day, they expected that. There was, who, were, who were the best? Who were the kids that would have gotten chosen first if you were kind of creating your, your best religion now? You would choose the Pharisees, right? The the religious elite, the the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. You would choose those people. You would choose the people that always went to temple, always went to synagogue, never missed a service. These are the kinds of people that you would want. These are the kinds of people that expected to be on a young, new, powerful rabbi's team. And he said, you're not my kind of people. In fact, when he went to his hometown of Nazareth, they expected to be picked first too, didn't they? 
He's reading this passage in Luke chapter 4 to them. They expected him to play favorites with them. We're your inner circle, Jesus. We're your core team. We're the people that you want to be around. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, well, it's really not about you. (laughs) It's about my mission to proclaim freedom to the captives, to the poor, to the outcasts, to the outsiders. And then he actually uses two illustrations. Illustrations are a thing we see in the Bible. He uses two illustrations. He talks about Elijah and Elisha. I want to read those. I want to look at them. Verse 25 says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. So what do we see here? This is a story in the Old Testament about 900 years before Christ. A prophet, Elijah, whose main ministry had been to the nation of Israel, God sends him into the region of Sidon. That's the region of Syria. Syria is the center of Baal worship. It's like, go hang out with those people that worship demons. He sends them to them. He sends it to not the, the rich and the powerful of that nation so that that can become like God's next chosen people. He sends Elijah to a widow. <laughs> a poor, destitute widow has nothing but a son and she's gathering sticks so that she can make some sort of meal and her son and her will die. And Elijah performs some miracles and they, they, they eat they, they survive the famine, but then actually the son dies. What does Elijah do? Elijah performs a miracle, and this son is resurrected from death. This is meant to illustrate that God brings salvation to the outsiders. God cares about the outcasts. He sends his prophet to people that aren't on the inner circle. And then there's another story in the, in the next verse with, the, with Elijah. Now, Elisha is Elijah's protege. It took me like years to figure out which one came first. It's J before S. Maybe you already have it. Verse 27, and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Okay, so Naaman is also from Syria, the center of Baal worship, demon worship. And he's this guy, he gets leprosy and there's no cure. But then he had, uh, okay, so he's a, he's a military leader and they were at war with Israel. And he, he was in war with them and at some point in his battles with them, he stole a little Jewish girl from Israel and made her his servant. And this little girl, she says, well, there is someone in Israel that can cure Naaman of his leprosy. His name's Elisha. And so Naaman gets the permission from the king to go and to to see Elisha. And he goes and Elisha says to bathe in the river, the Jordan River, seven times and you'll be cleansed. And at first he's like, this is hogwash, this is ridiculous, I'm not going to do it. But then he does, he obeys, and he's cleansed. And this is another story of God showing his grace, showing his salvation to someone who's on the outside, someone in the outskirts. 
And so he uses these two stories to kind of set up our passage today. Because as we look at Luke chapter 7, now you can flip back to Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, we actually see a repeat of these stories. We see another example of God not choosing the best. God extending grace to those on the outside. I don't know about you, but our, our culture is all about like the, breast, the, the, the best and the brightest, the people that have like the star power. I think it was 2003, 2002 or 2003, it was 16 years ago, I'm not a math guy, that American Idol started. Who, who here has watched American Idol? Okay. Who here has voted on American Idol? Oh, less of you, okay. Well, what's the whole concept of American Idol, right? You, you go through lots and lots of people. They go and they audition before a, a panelist of judges, and the panelist of judges is searching for people with star power. And star power is not like, it's not the person with the best singing voice. It could be, but it's this combination of looks, charisma, and singing. So it's like the complete package. And these, all these candidates, they go and they audition and they get, uh, they get put through the ringer. And then if they get through the first round, they go to Hollywood Week where, they, where they're rewarded with seven more days of just awful torture, lots of auditions. And then if they can make it through that, the top 24 are rewarded with being judged by you guys. <laughs> we judge them. See, we join in the judging <laughs> We join in saying, well, this person, I like their looks. I like their charisma. I like their personality. I like how they talk and sing, and so I'll vote for them. The gospel, the good news that we're going to find in Luke chapter 7 is that God is not a panelist that chooses based on potential star power. God is not that kind of judge. He does not examine what everyone else sees. He examines what's on the inside, what's going on in the heart. And I, I had Andy and the worship team read Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17, because it ties back in to, uh, to Luke chapter 4. See, we just read the story of Elijah and Elisha, and one of them was about a widow and her son being raised from the dead. And what do we see in verses 11 through 17? It's the story of Jesus coming to the town of Nain. That's such an awesome name for a town. How come we don't have Nain, New England? He's coming to this, this town, and as he's, he's entering into the town, there's a woman coming out, a widow, and her only son has died. This is absolute destitution. We don't maybe understand this in our culture, but like your, your widow was your retirement, your, your son was your retirement plan, your children. And she's a, she's a widow, so she doesn't have a husband that can provide for her, and this is her only son. Her, all hope is lost here. And what does Jesus do? It says he, he had compassion on her. I want to look at verses 13. And following, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier, 
they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Just like Elijah, Jesus raised this boy. See, I want us to, 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 to take a step back here for a moment and look at the big story of the Bible. See, the God of the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. So this God has now taken on flesh. He's telling the exact same story. The, the story, sometimes it's, it's easy as we, as we read the Old Testament that, to think of, uh, of God as just being very selective and only choosing these people, but actually God is using those people to be a blessing to all the nations, to bring light and grace and kindness to peoples on the outside. And Jesus is telling this same story. Luke intentionally puts uh, chapter 7, these stories of the widow and the centurion, to remind us of Elijah, to remind us of Elisha. They are matching stories. They are parallel stories to remind us that Jesus is writing and telling the same story that's been told throughout the entire Old Testament. And now as we look at verses 1 through 10, the faith of the centurion, that matches Naaman getting healed of his leprosy. He's also someone's servant, someone's, <laughs> he answers to the king. And in this story, we're going to see the centurion asking for his slave to be healed. His slave who is near to death. So let's begin to look at this story. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. I'm a little behind on our scripture verses. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. So what do we hear? see here? We see a centurion. Now, as we encounter the centurion, what do we expect? The centurion is, is a lot like Naaman in that he is someone who's in a position of authority, a position of power. He has waged war against the Jewish people. <laughs> the centurion has likely either taken the lives of Jewish people, maybe rebels, zealots, with his own sword, or at least commanded others to do so. You don't, you don't get in charge of, of, of commanding 80 to 100 people, which is what a centurion would oversee and command. You don't get in charge of that by keeping your hands clean. See, this isn't the kind of guy that you would expect Jesus and the Jewish people to really like. To really say, oh, we love this kind of guy. You're expecting a different kind of person, aren't you? Jesus will do a miracle for someone else. But actually, if we look at this story, this centurion, he is an outsider. But he's a different kind of outsider. See, Jesus said he would come for the poor, the outcast, right? The prisoners, those who are in captive, the blind. Well, the centurion, he's not poor. <laughs> he's wealthy. He, he is a foreigner, so there's that. And he's, he's aligned himself. He's, he, he works for the Roman government. 
So he's an outsider, but he's a little bit different because the Jewish people, they love him. In fact, elders of the Jewish people, they go to him, they go to Jesus on behalf of the centurion, asking, asking this, this, this rabbi, Jesus, come and heal the centurion's slave. And why do they love the centurion? If we look at the text, we see several reasons. So when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this. If we're looking at verses 4 and 5. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. The, 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 the Jewish elders, they, they look at this centurion and they say, this man built us our synagogue, which is like our church. So he's a great guy. He treats us well. He loves our nation. Maybe he was a God-fearer. Maybe he worshipped or, or knew a little bit more about the Jewish religion, the Jewish faith, and the other people. But they also are speaking a little bit of his character here. Because it says, the master, the centurion, he highly valued his servant. This, this Greek word really means like he considered him to be precious. He counted him as valuable. Do you have things around your house that you're like, I count that as valuable? Or maybe you have people. I count this person as valuable, as precious. In that culture, servants, slaves, this is really a slave. Like you can discard them. They're property. And so it's really amazing that this centurion is going to Jesus, is sending messengers to Jesus on behalf of a slave. See, this guy, if there's anyone on the outside that deserves to be saved, that has enough merit, that has enough value, that has earned it, it's this guy, right? This guy is worthy for God to have mercy on him because he's a good guy. I want us to imagine for a moment, imagine on the screen there's two frames. There's two picture frames. They're empty. You're going to fill the picture frame. The frame on the left is the picture is a picture of someone you know and love and care about. <laughs> someone who loves and accepts you, thinks you're the best person in the world, just can't get enough of you. That's the person on the left. And the person on the right is the exact opposite of that. That's a person that doesn't like you, <laughs> that you can't get along with. That person doesn't get along with you. And when you think of that person, you know, feelings of frustration well up in your heart. Okay, so we have these two picture frames. Which of these people deserves Jesus to have mercy on them more? Which of these people deserves Jesus to come into their life and to change their life? Which of these people just, they're worthy <laughs> the correct answer is neither. <laughs> and there's something about this centurion that I really love. See, he recognizes this. He realizes that he's not worthy for Jesus to come to him. And this is what takes place in the next kind of frame of the story. Verse 6. 
He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. How many times does this centurion say, I'm not worthy? See, the, the Jewish elders, they said it once. <laughs> the centurion says, they, they said, this man is worthy once. And he says, he's unworthy twice. <laughs> he's like counteracting them in verse 7. That is why I have not had you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Oh, the second half of verse 6. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. See, the centurion looks at his own heart and knows he's not the best guy in the world. He knows he doesn't have merit. He knows that when Jesus comes into his house, someone sacred is stepping over his doorstep and he's not sure he can handle it. <laughs> There's a lot of humility in the centurion. I mean, he, he works for the most powerful, successful government in the entire world at this time, the Roman government. And Jesus is a, is a homeless rabbi in the Middle East who walks around in sandals and his feet get dirty and he's followed by 12 smelly men. And he says, you're not... I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. This is amazing. And yet Jesus does go to him. Jesus does, well, Jesus does perform the miracle. Jesus does as this man asks. And here's the big idea. Here's the point. That Jesus saves the outsiders who put their faith in him. The centurion is an outsider. He is an outcast. And he puts his faith not in his own merits and his own works, but in the merit of Jesus, in the person and the power of Jesus Christ. We actually see the kind of faith the centurion has in the next couple of verses here, in verses 7 and 8. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. That's powerful right there. Maybe this, this centurion believes that the word became flesh. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell you this one, I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. This centurion uses an illustration to, to, to show why he doesn't need Jesus to come to his house. First, why he's undeserving. And second, why Jesus doesn't have to come to his home. And he uses an illustration from his own life. He says, I'm a man that's been given authority. And that means there's a Roman government, there's a senate, there's a Caesar, there's an emperor that's over him that has granted him authority. It's just like we have a president, we have a, a senate, we have a congress, we have a house. They grant authority, right? And then, and then there's, so that's the top level, and he's kind of at the middle level. He's an officer, 
He has 80 to 100 men underneath him. We have officers in our military. And what do they do? They command people. Other officers, enlisted men. And that's what the centurion does. He commands his men. He says, uh, go do this to one soldier. And they go and they do it. And says it's the same thing to his servant. And they go and they do it. He has authority. But he's saying something really amazing. <laughs> he is implying that Jesus is on a chain of command. The centurion's chain of command is human. But Jesus' chain of command is divine. See, he's saying, if you speak, my servant will be healed. In other words, when you speak, the natural world reacts. <laughs> the natural world responds. My servant can go from being sick to being well. I think he actually, if we look at kind of the whole story, he's, he, he's not even saying, you can, you can make my servant better Earlier, it said that he was sick and about to die in verse 2. That means he was approaching death. And the elders, they say, come and save him. This word for save is, is, is the Greek word. It means to bring safely through. The centurion has really sent a message to Jesus asking Jesus to bring his servant safely through death. That's what we call resurrection faith. <laughs> That's what we call resurrection hope. And I think the centurion has it. He believes Jesus is divine. He believes Jesus can conquer death. Well, that's pretty big faith. And here we see Jesus' response. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. I don't think that's a, a diss at Israel. I think he's just saying, this guy has great faith. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Matthew's account does record Jesus saying something and then, then the, the servant is healed. But Luke actually takes that off because I think he wants to demonstrate the faith of the outsider. That, it, that, that God used the faith of this individual to save his servant. This is an amazing story because it tells us about the kind of faith that you and I are called to have. We're, we're called to have resurrection faith. <laughs> we're called to believe that, that Jesus can bring life out of death. Not just at the end of days, but as we go through our week, as we go through our life. That no matter what we're going through, <laughs> no matter how down and low we feel, Jesus can bring us up. Because we find our hope and our trust in him. But even if that week, it takes its ultimate toll and we die, we can have peace and rest knowing that we will one day rise again. I think Andy made a comment about what you believe. <laughs> it's not just an action that we're believing, though we're also believing in a person. See, the centurion is believing in the person and the work, the power of Jesus himself. Notice that the centurion doesn't place his faith in himself, but in Jesus. And that's the kind of faith you and I are called to have. We're not called to say, you know, I guess I'm pretty good. <laughs> I think I can make it. I think I can be a good enough Christian for God to love me. 
I think I can be a good enough person for, for God to save me and let me into his kingdom. <laughs> That's not the kind of faith the centurion has, and he has the greatest faith of all. See, we're called to say, not I am worthy, Jesus help me out, but I am unworthy, Jesus you're all I need. Our faith shouldn't start with, it's me that matters, Jesus. Our faith should start with, it's you that matters, Jesus. Finding less of our merit in ourselves and more of our merit in Christ. That's a lifelong journey. That's not an easy thing. But we're called to do it day by day. Jesus, I'm looking to you. I'm looking less to myself. I'm looking more to you. That's an application we can all take home this week to challenge ourselves, to look to the person of Jesus no matter the trials we encounter. So we can have resurrection faith as an, as an application point, uh, putting it in the, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And there's another application. See, anyone can have this kind of faith. <laughs> we're all outsiders who become insiders through Jesus. See, when we're born, we're born into sin. We all stand on the outside We're all born into brokenness. And that's why Jesus came into this world to bridge the gap, to invite us from the outside into his kingdom, into the inside. And and to get us that that entrance into his, his, his kingdom, he had to pay the ultimate penalty. He had to die. But if we put our faith in him, we get to live. Just like this servant was raised One day we'll rise again too. So this is good news. Any of us can be outsiders. And there's another application to to never stop believing. (laughs) Those people that are around you, that you think, man, they're on the outside. I wouldn't be so convinced. Jesus can raise the dead. He can certainly save whoever's standing on the outside in your life. Our big idea is that Jesus saves the outsiders who put their faith in him. I want to go back to that illustration of the sports and the lineup, but I want to imagine it a little bit differently. See, I think we all have this fear, at least I sometimes have this fear, (laughs) that at the end of days, like when I die, (laughs) that there will be this lineup. And Jesus will go down the line and he will say, you did enough for me. <laughs> You're on my team. You did, you did great. You played on the worship team. You, you read the scripture passage every week. You can come on in. Like you gave enough of your income. <laughs> Welcome. And that when he walks by me, he won't stop. Because I won't have done enough. I won't be good enough. That's not the gospel. That's religion. That's false. See, Jesus stops in front of those that have a deep yearning in their heart to be on his team, that recognize that they don't deserve it, they're not worth it, but they just want to be on his team. Jesus stops in front of those people and says, come and be on my team. You can wear my colors. You can have my jersey. I want to invite you into my family. Jesus picks those that are picked last he picks them first Jesus saves the outsiders who put 
our faith in him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that outsiders become insiders in him. Father, give our hearts rest this week. Give our hearts rest in knowing just what Jesus has done for us. Help us to have that same kind of faith as the centurion that didn't trust in himself but trusted in Christ. I ask that we would trust you with our finances. We're about to take our offering. I want to trust you with my finances, and I hope that we'll all trust you. Would you take what we give and bless it and multiply it and use it for your kingdom, and would it be enough? Father, we want to love you in this way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.